And we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. God says through Paul, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standard. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would make your word clear, uh, let it strike us powerfully this morning, and let it change our hearts. May your Holy Spirit uh, conform us into the image of Christ in the way that we think, in the things that we say, in the way that we live, Lord. We want to be uh, honoring and pleasing to you. So please, Lord, help us this morning. Help me uh, to preach with clarity and to honor Christ. We want him to be pleased, and we pray for his glory, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we uh, just got to share a little bit with you, uh, I got to spend a few weeks in Africa with, um, with Brian and uh, with Randy, and that was my first time in a third world country, so lots of new, different things, uh, different place, different people, different language, different customs, clothing, food, all kinds of different things, and yet, same God, same spirit, same truth, even same problems oftentimes within the churches, and same hunger for God's word. But what I noticed was, especially in the more rural areas, really all over, but especially in the more rural areas, there was something different that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And the analytical side of me wanted to figure out what, what is different here, and my mind sort of wandered to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I've wanted to preach this passage before. I reference this all the time in junior high and tell the kids, Christianity is not cool, and it's never going to be cool. And something on this trip sort of cemented that, and what, what I started to see is I think we face some unique uh, pressures and expectations here in America and here in Southern California, some unique 
pressures. Uh, from, a, from a church perspective, we face pressures in terms of, uh, nowadays, we'll talk about churches by the pastor that leads them. Oh, that's Bill's church, or that's so-and-so's church, or we'll talk about how many people came to the Easter service, or how many baptisms there were, or on a personal level, uh, we sort of feel this pressure, maybe you feel it, to be uh, everywhere and everything, um, I think especially of moms in this context. There's sort of this underlying pressure that we don't say out loud that, you know, if you're truly a Proverbs 31 woman, you'll be at Monday missionary prayer, you'll be at Tuesday women's Bible study, Wednesday Awana, you should volunteer, Thursday you'll do a Bible study in another church, Friday you'll disciple a younger woman, Saturday you'll serve in the youth ministry, Sunday you'll be at all three services, and all of this you'll do while evangelizing your neighbors, spending time with your immediate family and extended family, having a vibrant prayer life, completely devoted to raising your children, loving your husband, keeping your house clean, and doing all of that with this perfectly like messy but put together look all at the same time. Right? That's sometimes that what we message subconsciously, but not just to the ladies. That falls on husbands, that falls on children, it falls on pastors, volunteers, whatever job you're in. That pressure falls on, on us, it seems like, here in this culture. <coughs> and so the question that I want to, to look at today and help us with, and I think 1 Corinthians helps us with, is how do we, how do we approach ministry in light of these pressures? How do we have a healthy church, a healthy church family, a healthy gospel ministry? What characterizes it in light of these pressures? And so this is uh, a bit longer sentence, but we're going to walk through it. I'm going to put it up uh, behind me as well, but but we're going to see Paul's going to give us five things that characterize a healthy gospel ministry. And it sort of forms this sentence that, that it's healthy ministry is characterized by simple messengers proclaiming a foolish message about a crucified king to average people who are now in Christ. Like I said, we'll walk through that whole thing. We're going to uh, go step by step, but, but I think that is the answer that Paul gives us and God gives us in 1 Corinthians as to how do we handle these pressures pressing on us as a church and as individuals. Now, before we jump into the actual verses, I, I do want to establish one thing. Some of you, when you hear me say ministry, think that's for pastors and elders. You do the ministry. You're the professionals that do the ministry. And I want you to see that this message is for you and for me. For you and for me. Remember, we say this every week, that what is the mission of the church as a whole? We say we're a Christ-centered community and we're intent on proclaiming the gospel. And then what do we say in that second line there? Making disciples. Jesus gave us our marching orders in Matthew 28. We are to make disciples. And the rest are subordinate. Going, baptizing, and teaching. And that covers the whole span of Christian life. Baptism from when you're saved. Teaching all that I've commanded goes until you die or Jesus returns. And so as believers, this isn't just something that pastors do. Every single believer is responsible to, to speak the truth to whoever you're with, your children, your neighbors, your family members, your fellow church members. We minister to one another by speaking the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, and letting the Holy Spirit change us. 
Wherever you meet someone, if they're an unbeliever, they need the truth of God's word. They need the gospel to be saved. If they're a new believer, they need help understanding and becoming stable and strong in faith. If they're a mature believer, they might need counsel or encouragement or exhortation from the truth of God's word. And so all of us, every believer, is about making disciples. And pastors and elders, we, we simply come along and coach and encourage and train. The way Ephesians says it is we equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so this is for all of us. Healthy gospel ministry is about every relationship that you have every day. It's about taking God's word and applying it to those people that we meet and helping them grow spiritually. So, this message is for you. This message is for me. It's for us as a church. It's for us as individuals. And like I said, we want to answer, how do we pursue faithful gospel ministry? What flavor will it have? What should characterize a faithful gospel ministry. So we're going to start in verse 10. In verse 10 through, through 16, we're going to sort of run into the problem that was going on at Corinth and set the context. So verse 10 tells us that Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is at the outset of the letter. Paul is shaping the whole purpose of this whole letter of Corinthians. And his goal for the church is that they be unified. Unified in one mind. When we are unified and love one another, that's when we put on display for the world that the gospel works. That Christ really is the Savior. And so that is what Paul wants. Not just any unity, though. Unity around the truth. Unity around the truth of the gospel. Martin Luther said it well. Peace if possible, truth at all costs. And so Paul wants unity around the gospel. But there's a problem. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And so here's the issue. The Corinthian church has misunderstood the gospel and its implications on healthy ministry, and they've taken the messengers and put them over the message. They've exalted the messengers over the message. And so Paul brings out begins bringing out the solution in verse 17. In verse 17. There he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The first thing that characterizes healthy gospel ministry is simple messengers. Simple messengers. This means that we elevate the message above the messenger, above the one communicating it. We, um, you may not think this is prominent in, in our circles so much, but I would speak uh, primarily first off to those of you who are under 30. That's my age group. If you're under 30, uh, we are especially prone to this, and I would just say beware of any pastor, preacher, teacher who seems enamored with himself or enamored with their own ministry or their own church. Beware of listening to preachers 
because you like how they dress or their hairstyle or they use the catchphrases that fit your vocabulary. Beware of elevating the messenger over the message. But that, I think, is, is relatively obvious, though we, it needs to be said. But there's something more subtle that I think we are um, more prone to. I think more common in our circles is we can elevate the messenger over the message by developing a discontentment with the preacher in the place where we regularly go to church. We can develop this discontentment. We live in an age, you all know this, you can go online right now and download any sermon from any pastor that you want like that. And we know that human nature is such that if we all went to the church with the greatest pastor in the entire world, after a few months, we would, we would be disenchanted. We would, we would start to become familiar, overly familiar. That's human nature. And so our job as believers, as we're seeking maturity, is, is to focus on the message, not the messenger. If your pastor, and Pastor Mike does, if your pastor clearly explains the truth, holds fast to the word, proclaims the gospel clearly, our job is to take that as God's message week by week and let the spirit change us. And so as you mature as a believer, what we need to do is be honest with ourselves and realize if you're going to be in any one local church for a long period of time, you're going to become familiar with whoever's preaching at that church. The excitement will wear off, and then the question is, what will you do next? Will you move on to find the next personality that's interesting and engaging and exciting, or will you grow into maturity, settle down, serve, love one another, and continue to grow week by week as the Spirit teaches us together? Then when it comes to our personal ministry, when we share the gospel with, with our neighbors or our friends or even our own children, we can subtly start to make the messenger more important than the message. Have you ever uh, noticed we can tend to obsess over what to say or what I should have said, using the right words or coming off the right way or being winsome enough? That's making it about me, not about the message. Or Maybe we say, I'm, I don't know if I can really uh, share the gospel or evangelize because I don't have, I'm not as gifted as so-and-so. Wait a minute, is it about the, the messenger or the message? Or you hold back from sharing a hard truth or rebuking even another believer because, well, what are they going to think? Wait, that's not love. That's self-love. That's protecting ourselves. We focus on the messenger, not the message. And in verse 17, the, the second half of that really gives the, the reason why this is so deadly. Paul says, he was sent to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If we in any way exalt us as the messenger, what we're doing is, it's like you have a cup of, of strong medicine to give to someone that will cure their disease, and it's powerful. And you pour it out on the ground and hand them the empty cup and say, get well. If we as a church have an air of, hey, we're real pleased with ourselves. Hey, we're not so bad. Hey, we're pretty, we're pretty great. That empties the gospel of its power. But the reality is that this is so freeing. Think about this. It's not about you saying the right thing. It's not about you looking right. It's not about you uh, 
avoiding, you know, the hard parts and saying it just right. It's freeing. All we do is clearly and honestly and lovingly share the truth and pray for the Holy Spirit to work. And we do that with unbelievers and we do that with believers. And we just with one another. So praying that Christ would grow us into mature believers and save others. And as a church, it's freeing. We don't have to keep up with the trends of what's going on in the church world. We don't have to worry about being flashy or special. We just trust the Spirit to work through simple messengers. So the first thing that characterizes faithful gospel ministry is simple messengers, and they proclaim a foolish message. Simple messengers proclaiming a foolish message. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's, here's a simple but pointed way to sum up this verse. Christianity is not cool. And it won't ever be cool. And you can't make it cool. And you can't woo people to saving faith. See, this first phrase, the word of the cross, that's another way of saying the gospel message. And and it is a word of the cross. The cross is the center of our message. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, the center of the Christian gospel is that we have rebelled against God and that on the cross, God came as a man, took the punishment that our sins deserved, swallowed hell on our behalf, and now if you will trust in Christ, bow your knee to him, you can have eternal life and joy forever. The cross is the center of our message. And so this word of the cross, this gospel message, goes out and it falls on two types of people. Type number one hears it and it is foolishness, folly. From that word, we get the word moronic. Unbelievers hear the gospel and say, that's moronic. That's ridiculous. That's foolish. And then there's a second type of person. They hear the gospel and they say, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This isn't foolishness. This is the epic display of God's power in, in saving me and providing new life and providing a way to know him and walk with him. Now, what's the difference, though, between these two people? The one that says, that's moronic, and the one that says, that is my life. We've seen this in Romans over and over again. It's the Spirit. It's God softening the heart and opening the eyes. It's not us turning a clever phrase. It's not us appealing to unbelievers. We can never make the gospel cool. It is inherently ridiculous to unbelievers. But we trust the Spirit, and we trust that when we're faithful to be clear with the gospel, the power of God will be unleashed as the Holy Spirit saves those he wills. And he opens their eyes and he softens their heart. Of course we want to present the gospel with love and patience and gentleness and all those things. But we don't trust in those things. So Paul is going to quote now from Isaiah and it flows perfectly. It makes perfect sense. He says in 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Isaiah is a book all about God's salvation and how God is going to work salvation. And this quote comes from a section where God is telling the Israelite people, you are, you are stubborn and rebellious and you think very highly of yourselves, of your own wisdom, of your own power. And so I'm going to work salvation in a way that totally flips it on its head. That's going to humiliate those who think that they're smart and they're strong and they're the ones who know. And that will save the nobodies. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not, implication, he has, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There's a flip. Has not God made moronic the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The point of these verses is this. The gospel is simple. The gospel is simple. It's not relegated or, or, or only for the, the educated and the, the brilliant and the wise and the clever. I think about my great-grandmother who came from Italy, who was illiterate and was saved because a pastor knocked on her door and shared the gospel and she knew the Lord is good, the Lord saved me, I was sinful, I trust in him. They say that the gospel is something that a child can wade in and an elephant can drown in. I love that. You see these scholars producing book after book after book and on and on and on, and they can't plumb the depths of the gospel. And yet we can explain it to a five-year-old and they could understand the facts of the gospel and trust in Christ. That is beautiful. Our message is simple. It's clear for the educated, the uneducated, the wealthy, the poor, the young, the old, everyone anyone who will bow the knee to Christ and put their trust in him. That is the wisdom of God on display. So, at the end of the day, we are not cool. We're not going to be cool. But if we want to see God's power unleashed, we'll stick to this seemingly foolish message. So, we have uh, a healthy gospel ministry characterized by simple messengers proclaiming a foolish message about a crucified king. About a crucified king. Verse 22. Paul's going to explain here the two responses he got when he shared the gospel. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Two responses. Response number one, prove it. Prove it. Let's see some miracles. You say Jesus is the Messiah. You say you know the truth. Prove it. Or response number two, okay, make it fit with our scientific logical system. Show us how it fits perfectly together. And we really have these two broad systems of thought completely at play nowadays. You go on the street and share the gospel with someone, and you will probably get something in the realm of these two responses. Either mm, prove it. Prove that that gospel thing really works. Prove that Jesus really is who you say he is. Or on the other side, mm, I don't know, the weight of scientific evidence, like I just, I can't trust the Bible, I can't trust your gospel, I'm, I'm a thinking person. Um, those are the two general responses you're going to get to the gospel. And so Paul, he has a few options here. He can say, all right, signs and wonders, let's go. I'm going to do miracles and I'm going to prove to you that this is the truth. Doesn't do that. He can say, okay, let's, um, let me give you a reasoned, logical argument for the faith which we're called to do, by the way. He could have done that. Or 
seems like we're tempted towards this one. He could have downplayed doctrine, softened the edges a little bit, and just presented a gospel that wasn't quite so offensive and wouldn't come off quite so foolish. He didn't do any of those. Look at Paul's response. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. That was Paul's response, that is our response, that is the response of the church throughout history and will be until Jesus returns. We preach Christ crucified till our dying breath. I want you to see both of those words and what they mean. Christ crucified. We preach news about a person. The gospel cannot be reduced to four spiritual laws or two ways to live or the sinner's prayer. The gospel is news about Christ and all of who he is. If you reduce the gospel to how to avoid hell, you've, you've, you've messed up the gospel. If you reduce the gospel to how to get to heaven, you may be reducing the gospel because heaven is not heaven without Christ. And eternal life is boring and useless unless it's spent with Christ. The gospel, the point, the goal of the gospel is that we could one day stand in the presence of God blameless and with great joy forever. The goal of the gospel is a person, Christ himself. It's being reconciled to him, united with him. So we preach Christ. As you, as you talk to your children, as you talk to your coworkers, as you talk to whoever it is about the gospel, just be careful that you are presenting a full-orbed picture of the gospel, that it is not simply, here's four steps to avoid hell. But here is a person for you to trust and love and cherish and be made right with. He is Christ. Secondly, he is Christ crucified. Christ crucified. The one thing that makes absolute sense, Christ executed. Now, obviously, he's raised from the dead. He's ascended to the Father. He's at the right hand. He's ruling. We know all that, but Paul emphasizes here a crucified Savior, and this makes no sense to the world. You're telling me that the king of the universe came on a rescue mission and got killed. Nice job. That makes no sense to the world. It's shameful. It was shameful then, and in many ways it's shameful even now. The world doesn't get it. But we preach a crucified Savior, because as I said earlier, the cross is the center of our gospel message, that God in human flesh hung on that tree and absorbed infinite wrath on our behalf for those who trust in him. That's the core and the heart of the gospel and that we now have righteousness because of him if we trust in him. Now, there's more to say on crucified. I want to zero in on this idea of a crucified savior. There's a documentary that's been making the rounds uh, in our church and in the Christian world. You may have heard of it called American Gospel. Um, if you've not heard of it, I highly, highly, highly recommend it to you. Go find it. Watch it. It's really good. Um, watch it. But it deals with uh, how America has distorted the gospel. And it walks through some different ways that we do that. It walks through when we do Christ plus works or Christ plus miracles 
or Christ plus health, wealth, and prosperity. It walks through all these different things that we add to Christ that wreck the gospel. And I think a danger may be closer to home for us. They touch on it a little bit, but not, not a ton. A, a danger closer to us would be Christ plus comfort. Christ plus comfort. I think sometimes we forget we follow a Savior who was executed as a criminal, who was crucified. He, Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. My concern here is that, and this is, this is a concern that comes from my own heart, I see it in me, that, that we take this gospel message and, and we turned it in a desire to be respective and inoffensive and we've, we've sort of softened the edges and we've taken out anything that would be offensive or controversial or a, a, an affront to our rebellious heart. And I think we may have churches filled with people who believe they're saved, but silently and without ever realizing it, they've accepted a gospel that lets them have all the benefits of Christ and salvation, and at the same time hold on to their comfort. My little girl will try to pick up toys. If you've ever seen kids do this, they try to hold all the toys, they take one step and one drops, and then they try to pick that up and they drop three others, and they try, you know, they, they're always trying to hold more than they can, and we do this sometimes. We, we try to hold all of our comfort and have Christ too. You can't do that. And I'm not saying comfort is evil or that we need to pursue a, a horrible life on purpose. Comfort is a gift from God. We have plenty in America. And I think the pull on this, we, we, are, we have our radar up already for the theology that says, come to Christ and you can have health, wealth, and prosperity. That was huge in Africa, by the way. But we have our radar up for that. What, what we maybe don't have our radar up for is come to Christ and you can maintain a regular, mostly comfortable, minimal suffering life with all the benefits of being a follower of Christ. You can have your comfort and Christ at the same time. And the gospel is Christ alone. Christ alone. Are you willing to, to take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow him at whatever cost? helpful to maybe ask some questions about how we use our time and our money. Think about the last home that you moved to or place that you're living in now. When you moved there, what motivated your decision? What was going through your mind? Was it gospel purposes, kingdom purposes, or was it comfort purposes? What about when you have time to yourself, the weekend? Is it, I can use this for gospel purposes, or I can use this for comfort purposes? Or when you think about retirement, is it unhindered opportunity to relax and play one day or unhindered opportunity to serve the Lord? I, I have no problem with comfort or relaxing or playing. Those are wonderful things, gifts from God meant to be enjoyed. And at the same time, if you are unwilling to relinquish your hold on comfort, you cannot also have salvation in Christ. It is Christ alone. 
We preach a crucified Savior, rejected, mocked, persecuted, hated Savior. And even though it's uncomfortable to share the gospel with our neighbors, because it might, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from my own heart here, it might um, disrupt the relationship or be weird or awkward. Sometimes it scares me that maybe we are not willing to give up the uncomfortable demands that Christ makes on us. And we show that maybe we really don't have a hold on Christ, or rather he doesn't have a hold on us. Moving on, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For those who are saved, for those who believe the gospel, it doesn't come to them as foolishness and moronic. They see it and they say, this is the most epic display at the cross of God's wisdom and God's power to save. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Praise God for his true wisdom and true strength displayed on the cross. So, we have a faithful, healthy gospel ministry as a church and as individuals has, is characterized by simple messengers proclaiming a foolish message about a crucified king to average people, to average people. Here's where I lose all, um, all credibility of, or um, I don't know, goodwill, that whatever I gained with you. Uh, if you turn on TV, you see these preachers and, you know, turn to your neighbor and tell them God's going to bless you. Or, you all look wonderful today. Um, my job is to tell you, you are average. You are normal. You are nothing special. And neither am I. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, the nobodies, to bring to nothing things that are. I love this about our God. If you've picked teams ever, you know that there's always a person that gets picked last. Maybe you've been that person. God picks that person the one with no talents, no abilities, no reason to be picked, nothing special in themselves. We ask sometimes, why would God choose me? Almost with an air of arrogance about it. And the real answer, God chose you because you were a fool, because you were weak, because you were low and despised and a nobody. Me too. He picks the nobodies. Even if in the world's eyes we are smart, even if you really are brilliant, even if you did come from high standing, God's eyes, we are level. This completely levels the playing field. And the question for you is, does that bother you? Does that make you happy that you are not special or different than others or better than anyone else? Does it make you happy that God is at the center and God receives the glory? This is what provides unity for us as a church because it's totally level. Philippians 2 tells us what it looks like when this takes hold. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we really came to embrace this idea of we are average people, what it would do to our church, 
is we would be constantly asking, how can I serve you? Whoever you are, whatever age, whatever status, whatever, how can I serve you? How can I help you? How can I help you grow spiritually in Christ? How can I love you? How can I consider your interests more important than my own? When we are utterly humbled by this gospel, we start to scheme about how to bless one another and how to share the gospel with others. So, healthy ministry characterized by simple messengers proclaiming a foolish message about a crucified king to average people. And lastly, those people are now in Christ Jesus. Verse 29 gives us the the reason God set the gospel up this way, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And now verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. If you are a believer, You have been folded into this family, brought into the realm of Christ's kingdom, given all the benefits and blessings of a son or daughter of the Father. And when God looks at you, he sees Christ's goodness, Christ's righteousness, Christ's accomplishments. He sees you as pure and clean and righteous for those who trust in him. And and for us, when we hear the gospel, Christ is no longer foolish, and the word of the cross is no longer foolish, He now is the source of all of our wisdom, the source of our righteousness, the source of our sanctification, the source of our redemption. He bought us back. Christ is everything to us. He is salvation from beginning to end. And so we end up back really where we started. We are, as a church body, in Christ Jesus with a mission to make disciples bringing the gospel to unbelievers, encouraging new believers, strengthening maturing believers. We want to see, see as we speak the truth of God's words to one another that we would grow in spiritual maturity continually with humility, loving one another, laser focused on our mission to make disciples. And we'll be a church characterized by simple messengers proclaiming a foolish message about a crucified king to average people who are now in Christ. And so... As we wrap up this morning, there, I was getting ready thinking, okay, so what are, you, what are you really trying to address here, Andrew? Boil it down. What, what are we trying to address? And I'm going to give you three quick things that I think can happen if we get this wrong. If we let the world and the world's ideas and the, kind of the Christian culture ideas press in on us, I think three things can start to happen. The first one we need to be aware of is a shift from where we let entertainment replace partnership. Entertainment replace partnership. The the New Testament sees the church as a partnership of believers striving for the gospel, sharing the truth with others, sharing the truth with one another, growing together in partnership. But if we let this shift take place, we start to see church as something of an entertainment culture. We come on Sunday and we ask, how was church? Or what church do you go to? Not what church are you a part of? We are a family, not an entertainment culture that comes on Sunday and then waits for the next episode to air. That that is not the church. The second error that we can fall into is we see a shift where we start to let activity replace maturity. 
we, we start to, if we let the, the pressures press in on us, we start to think, well, I'm going to this, I'm doing this, I have my Bible study, I teach here, I do these things, and so uh, I'm really busy, that must mean I'm a mature believer. Or we put our emphasis on doing those things. And you might have noticed this, but busyness is a wonderful screen to hide behind and to ignore the real issues of our heart. And so we, we also want to be aware of, of activity replacing maturity. And, and sort of falling right on the heels, this is the same, same type of idea here. The third thing to avoid is the, the external replacing the internal. If we get this uh, flavor of ministry wrong, we can start to, again, look at um, all the things that we're doing. I, I read my Bible and I prayed, therefore I had a good day. I, I serve, I lead a Bible study, I teach my children, I shared the gospel with X number of people, therefore I'm a healthy believer. And we just need to remember that God is looking not external, but internal. God cares about genuine spiritual maturity, true holiness, true love for him, bearing the fruit of the spirit with humility and patience and kindness and gentleness and joy. Those are God's measures. And so just a few things to sort of think through and be aware of, um, but my prayer for us is that our church will be marked by simple messengers proclaiming and holding and sticking to a foolish, seemingly foolish message about a crucified king and remembering that we're average people who are now in Christ. My prayer is that we would engage in healthy gospel ministry for the sake of making disciples from here to the ends of the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are kind and good and patient, and we worship you for choosing us. We're, we are the weak and the small and the ones that should have been overlooked, and we had nothing good in ourselves, and yet you are the type of God that chooses the weak and chooses the least, and the, the, you choose the, the nots, the nothings, and so we worship and praise you for that. Lord, make us a church committed to this flavor of ministry, creating us a humility and a dependence on you. And Lord, help us to be making disciples in our homes, in our neighborhoods, it, when we gather as a church, wherever we go, uh, let that be the, the flavor and the shape of who we are. We pray this all so that Jesus would be glorified and worshiped as he deserves. We pray it in his name. Amen.